0: You're listening to the Experience key Podcast, a deeper look into the Sikh identity. We present to you open, honest, and inspiring stories. No armor, pretense, or sugarcoating. Welcome back to the Experience key Podcast. We welcome you from part one, which you were just listening to. Part two is beginning now. One thing we haven't touched into yet, but I think is very important, um, a lot of people, including myself, we think that once you have a degree in hand, you're done, mm-hmm. uh, the career starts, you don't have to learn anymore. Um, you've undergone continued studies programs. Mm-hmm. What's the value you see in them? What are they? What value do you see in them? And do you suggest that you know people engage themselves in these programs?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm a huge proponent of continuing studies. Um, they're super affordable. Mm-hmm. Like Every university offers them pretty much. Every college okay. offers them. And it's a great way. To either specialize what you're learning, mm-hmm. um, that's cost effective. Like okay. a lot of these classes are like end up being like twenty five bucks an hour, really, uh, yeah, wow. um, or like fifty, maybe, like compared to a university class, and it's taught oh. by the same people, mm-hmm. um, wow. facu- faculty or like guest faculty who yep. like, who are like credible most of the exactly. time. And so the reason I, I I suggest continuing study so much is because you can go to accelerated programs and like specialized programs Mm -hmm. and like with professionals and networking, blah, 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 and get a lot of experience, which is great. But sometimes you just want to dabble. And sometimes what you're bringing into a class is more valuable than what the class curriculum is. Mm -hmm. And this is something, again, that I feel like is carried through, not from Western learning, but from more of like that, like Ustad get the relationship which is like it's about a personal relationship so um, two classes that I took one was like after film school I kind of wanted to get back into theater I had no formal education in theater outside of high school which is like right it's like imagine teaching math when you have like the last math you did was calculus 12 and so um, so I was like I want to get into like playwriting again now I have like this writing education and so I took a playwriting class uh, with a great playwright, Lucia Frangioni. Um, and Lucia, who's like a, an incredible instructor and has since become a peer because we've actually worked on productions together since then mm-hmm. um, to kind of adapt my sensibilities and knowledges from film to, to theater. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I could have gone and done like, read, enrolled at like UBC or SFU um, or Kaplan or wherever. Mm-hmm be like take some classes it would have been way more expensive would have taken a whole semester this is eight weeks you know like a professional playwright is teaching you Mm -hmm. i have very specific things that i want to learn in that class i'm not stuck in a lecture hall of 300 people it's like you know like 15 people 10 people that are taking that class Mm -hmm. and now i can ask questions um where where like it's specifically targeted to what i want to learn yeah and there's a space for that mm-hmm. um similarly like uh one of my one of my instructors at vancouver film school uh, paul jensen fantastic brilliant film mind and i'm just a geek by, by all stretches of the imagination yeah um he was teaching a feature film script writing class which i was mm-hmm. kind of like outside of my wheelhouse because it's all short focused in film school yeah so i was like okay um You know, there's all types of people there. There's no admission requirement. Mm -hmm. But if I'm taking to that class, like I want to learn about feature film structure. Mm -hmm. I I got everything else I needed from him when we were in school. Yep. Right. So I could tailor that learning experience for myself. A lot of people come to me like, hey, you know, I used to, I used to do visual arts. I used to do this. And like, and I've become something of like this, like, I don't know, career creative arts therapist. (laughs) Like to like people be like, I used to be creative. And Mm now, now I'm an accountant and I want to do that again. And I'll always suggest to them, like, go to continuing studies, dabble there. It's better than going to like a rec center and taking like some, like whatever class. Okay. And it's better than committing like a semester of your life to do like book learning that you might not have any reason for. It might just dry out the subject for you. Mm-hmm. Go to that small environment and, you know, spend some time with like the experts and professionals It's super cost effective yep. and dabble or specialize, like mm-hmm. depending on what you're looking for.
0: It's very interesting because even a university course on average is $600 for one semester. Mm -hmm. So to be able to get eight weeks multiplied by 25, my math's not great, but I'm I'm assuming that's about $200, a third of the price.
1: But you're going for like three hours. So like you're probably paying around like, it's probably like 600 bucks too. Got it. But um, there's no like inflated tuition fees. You're just paying for the class, right? Also much
0: smaller class size. Exactly. Which is is something everyone wants as they get into our years anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Very interesting. Um, I wanted to touch back on the first play you wrote. Mm-hmm. You wrote it in 2015, produced it in 2016. Um, what was the inspiration, and what did it look like going from the writing of the play to the actual production and getting it on stage?
1: Yeah, that production was fun. So, Undocumented Trial of William C. Hopkinson was about the Shahid D F Miva Singh. For those who are not familiar, Miva Singh was the um the who lived here uh, from about 1908 to 1915 um, and was like adjacent to the leadership of the Sikh community and South Asian community at that time that was like very fiercely fighting for the independence of India from British Raj. And um, there was an immigration inspector by the name of William C. Hopkinson uh, who was the interpreter for the Canadian Immigration Department but also ran like this racket of like all these extra curricular activities that mm-hmm. were like oppressing the the brown folks who were living here and um, Hopkinson orchestrated the shoot a shooting uh, uh, assassinated two Sikhs, one by the name of Jathadar Bhag Singh and another by the name of Bai Badan Singh uh, in the first Gordora uh, here uh, second half Gordora, Calls of the One Society and to take justice on that and to kind of st- cut off the head of the snake that was causing all this trouble in the community Meva Singh assassinated Hopkinson turned himself in to police um and then was hanged uh by the canadian government on january 11th 1915 mm-hmm. So fascinating story literally happened in my backyard almost um yep. like minutes away from where i grew up and lived until a couple of years ago and just like it was a story i grew up with hearing about right and i wanted to the thing that I was, kind of, it was my first thing writing and I had just like finished like some of that playwriting instruction. So like writing a play was for, uh, fresh on my mind. The big thing that I was kind of navigating in my politics and stuff at the time was like space. And space being like what space means to us as a people living here. And so what I wanted to do, I was like, I want to take the space back where Mewa did this act, which is the Vancouver Art Gallery. Mm-hmm. And they still have those courtrooms. So I wrote the play to be in uh, the courtrooms that were around in that time, uh, where Miela Singh assassinated Hopkinson, and where his ensuing tra- trial took place, mm-hmm. but I wanted to reimagine it because Miela Singh couldn't have a trial because Singh's trial wasn't about the legal system. Miela Singh com- committed a crime, mm-hmm. according to uh, like he was a murderer, right, right? By by any stretch of the imagination, mm-hmm. um, well, for like for political reasons, I'll call it an assassination. Yep. But by the letter of the law, it's murder. Mm-hmm. And so, Mewa Singh killed Hopkinson. Therefore, according to Canadian law, it's premeditated. Yep. It's first-degree murder. Yep. You have to be hanged according to the, the, the law. The law of the time. Exactly. And so, but, and he never refuted that, mm-hmm. right? And so, the Mewa Singh's trial was super short. Ended in a couple of hours. Um, presented zero witnesses yep. on Mewa Singh's side. So, my thing was like, well, what if Mewa Singh was to present a defense, what would it look like? Uh, and the thing is, Mewa Singh can't present a defense because... He's taking full guilt, mm-hmm. so it wasn't a negotiation of the laws, it was a negotiation of morality and ethics, mm-hmm. and so the play is about basically about like, it's weird, like it's a, it's an absurd kind of play where like there's it's not just people who are alive on stage, but also people who are dead and consci- mm-hmm. like forms of consciousness. Some people like to call them ghosts. I feel like that's reductive, but that's me being pretentious. <laughs> um, but like of people who had passed mm-hmm. and it wasn't an, it was a negotiation or discussion of did Mavah Singh kill Hopkinson in a premeditated murder? Mm-hmm. It was why did Mavah Singh kill Hopkinson, right? And mm-hmm. like the discussion went beyond the letter of the land. So that's what the play was about. Mm-hmm. And it was about reclaiming that space in the Vancouver Art Gallery because the day that Mavah Singh's trial happened, all the six and South Asians that showed up there were held outside of the courtroom. They weren't allowed inside. Really? So yeah, so they were actually like, because they were like, they don't want to brouhaha. So they oh. kind of held them outside. Mm-hmm. Maybe a few trickled in, but it was like mostly white people in there. Mm-hmm. So like, let's get our audiences in there and like our people will see. So half of like the trial is like from the transcript mm-hmm. and half of it is just like <laughs> all all these things happening. like Creative th- liberties. Yeah, lots of creative liberty. Um, and obvious creative liberty because mm-hmm. at no point did like the the personified memory of the assassinated death of that boxing come back yeah. <laughs> and enter the courtroom right so uh-huh. um that was the inspiration and putting it up was like i had no community in the art space mm-hmm. um at that time only the people i had gone to school with so it was like uh i was a craigslist producer that's what we call them uh, craigslist producers are like people who don't know what they're doing mm-hmm. they're just like putting an ad on a craigslist being like so a lot, needed yeah yeah exactly exactly and then like you're showing up to their basement and they're paying you 50 bucks right to like read yeah. for some script that doesn't exist like that that's what we call co- that's what we, that's what you associated Craigs as producer with but that's mm-hmm. what I was but I had luckily the professional training to put the production together mm-hmm. self-produced the community came together I didn't call anyone in the arts community aside from the actors and the designers um otherwise I was like production team of like producing, selling tickets, mm-hmm. all that was just who people I knew from the Sikh and South Asian communities wow. who would be down to put the story up. Yeah, And they came together and they did it. And that service was like I am indebted to because even though I didn't take money for that first production, mm-hmm. right? There was no money to take. Paid all the actors, paid all the designers. Um, a nominal amount because it was all self-produced and then the people who were on the production team they did like the the producing team they did it as seva like they're like they did it as volunteer Mm -hmm. and we all did it just to put that one show up yep but then the show got Guru Marathi so much press right and it got it sold out and Mm -hmm. got all like this buzz around it yep and now all of a sudden I had a career based on that I owe my career to the combination of, by telling, like forcing me to learn about Sikh history mm-hmm. and instilling a passion for it. My mom introducing me at a young age by me, Singh for giving forgiving Kurbani. Then the Sangat coming together and being like, let's tell this story, mm-hmm. right? Right? There's all the blessings of like everyone else that came together and be like, here you go, here's this gift. And they launched my career. Mm-hmm. Um, my goal wasn't to like launch a career out of this. It was just to put the show up. Yep. But that—that's what happened, and it was like you know the, we do a lot. We throw a lot of shade, like oh, our community doesn't give this one. Our community doesn't um, take time or money out. Mm-hmm. Doesn't support the arts. Thing is, they do. But it's not our first priority. Mm. But when there's a relationship of trust there, when we st- someone's got to take the plunge. When uh-huh. someone takes the plunge, then the support is there. Mm-hmm. The problem with our community is they all stop their own from taking the plunge. Mm. Right, a lot of elders come to me, they'll be like, Blah blah blah, right? Give me all this bump, mm-hmm. like, you're doing such good stuff. How do we support you? Mm-hmm. I'll be like, If your kid wants to be a journalist, let them be a journalist. If your kid wants to be a process based multimedia visual artist, let them do that. Mm-hmm. If your kid wants to, let them do what they want, mm-hmm. right? As long as they're doing their kirt, right? By their own honest, hard earned means if your kid wants to be a grantee let him be a grantee like please if your kid wants to be a kirtani, let him be a professional If your kid wants to be a stad, all these things like let them do those things because you can't just count on everyone else giving their kids to quote unquote the cause and throw money at them Mm -hmm. right at some point you got to give your kid to the foliage as well yeah if that's where they want to be
0: that's very interesting um i've had these conversations very recently with some friends about for example, Santa progression that if we had started earlier or had these opportunities, if living in a data in India was an option as mm-hmm. a child, what would have been different and now the conversation's shifting to maybe if we didn't have these opportunities at least have or the next let the next generation have them um so they don't live with that what if scenario mm-hmm. in their head they were afforded that opportunity what they do with it after is up to them um I don't know that 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 resonated very deeply because it's it's not just in a professional sense it's it's um it encompasses a lot of facets of life Mm -hmm. as i've seen um but what i what i wanted to ask was after that first production what else have you done on stage or the big screen um since that first play and if there's an interesting story from any of those endeavors
1: yeah i mean i think the biggest um the, the shows that come to mind my, the personal one that kind of sits closest, nearest and dearest to my heart is the Vancouver Gold which was my second show. Mm-hmm. Um, the first, wow, that was your second. That was my second show. Wow, the first one to be professionally presented. Um, the
0: what? Sorry, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so professionally versus the undocumented s- trial. with yeah, the different self-produced. Be? Right, it was still a professional
1: okay, okay. production, but like I didn't have a professional company, mm-hmm. so Got it. um, it wasn't like held in the same stature and like the in the eyes of the community. Mm -hmm. The second time it went up, it was because a a festival picked it up and then the festival put it on. Mm -hmm. Okay. um, So in that regard, um, Vancouver Goldusta was like bought by, it was funded like the development, the writing of that show was funded, Mm -hmm. right? Like by an organization. And then the first run of that show was funded by an organization. Mm -hmm. The second was like put on by um, one of the like most reputable theaters in Vancouver, the Cult uh the east uh east vancouver cultural center mm-hmm. which is like in my opinion the the best program theater <laughs> in the city um so like as a, par- a part of their season mm-hmm. so that was like to be a part of like a theater season Yep, was was a big deal mm-hmm. um so on stage that was the big one vancouver kuldusta which kind of takes place in 1984 over 10 days uh june 1st to 10th uh in vancouver and like the response from the community follows the story of a Punjabi Sikh family um and the uh, Vietnamese family that lives in their basement uh, who are refugees from the Vietnam War mm-hmm. and their relationship that kind of develops through the the trauma of 84 and kind of them having experienced a similar trauma on the ground um, just before that, some years before uh, migrating to Vancouver. So that's Vancouver Um That one is super memorable because um, it was like 84 is one of those things like it's super, it's so hard to talk about it and without a spiritual context or religious context, mm-hmm. and without a political context, yep. We're, and not not a context, rather, but like without uh, an agenda, mm-hmm. right? And that's fine. Like that's kind of that's mostly how it needs to be. But in terms of processing, like the violence of '84. Just like there's a political context, a spiritual context, religious context, mm-hmm. but we're humans experiencing this thing. Yep. That's really what I wanted to achieve with that show. It's like mm-hmm. bringing people with different political opinions, vastly different, different levels of religiosity, yep. different relationships to the community. and Give them one space, feeling what they did back then and have them talk about it mm-hmm. and like have them like share space over yep. it and um, have them all reflected in some piece on stage right have Mm -hmm. the people they disagree with reflected on stage the people they agree with and then not take sides just let it live Uh, with them um and like let them just feel that we're all feeling the same thing Mm -hmm. because i think that pain right that is like once the that first bandaging of the wound has happened you kind Mm -hmm. of forget what that initial shock trauma was yeah and not to give them shock and give them trauma again and read like re-traumatize them but rather to give a glimpse of like that feeling and put it in a space of empathy. Mm -hmm. So Vancouver Golasas is close to my heart uh, because I feel like it embodies kind of like beginning to end what I want to do as as an artist. Mm -hmm. Um, Aside from that, uh, I just wrote, co-wrote and directed a documentary called Press Breaker, uh, which has probably had the most visibility of any of the work uh, Mm -hmm. that I've done. Very grateful for. It's the story of the first Punjabi woman to play, the first Punjabi Sikh woman to play uh, NCAA Div 1 basketball, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Harleen Sidhu, who's from Surrey, and that she played with the uh, University of Nebraska in 2000, from 2009 to, uh, 8 to 11, Mm -hmm. Um, and her story story was really cool, so we did a documentary on her, which uh, was funded by TELUS, but then it aired uh, nationwide, uh, first on Omni, but then now Uh, it aired on Sportsnet too, which was, which was beautiful. It was really meaningful to me because I grew up watching uh, sports documentaries on Sportsnet because TSN was, uh, TSN was like extended cable, Mm -hmm. basic cable had Sportsnet. And so I'd have to wait for like Beyond the Glory or a show like that to come on. Um, And that's where I learned about like the Fab Four and like that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff was through those sports docs on Sportsnet. So to have like in Ontario and, and across the province to have like, Work that we did about our community up there was cool. Uh, I did a documentary last year as well called "The Ecstatic," uh, which is about a Goali hip hop um, group um, that's based both out of Vancouver and uh, Jaisalmer in Rajasthan, mm-hmm. uh, and which was which was a lot of fun. Um, and then one project that I don't talk about a lot, but it's probably like low key one of my favorites is I for Sick Heritage Month BC I did an ad campaign for them. But uh, there's one ad in there, uh, which is on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And it's like my most easily publicly accessible work, which is like a hype video for Nagarikyutans, mm-hmm. like sports sports hype video style. Uh, that was just me being me. Like that's like just me on, in 60 seconds. The pump. Like the pump, the call of fever, yep. the sports aspect, mm-hmm. right? Like that's the community that's cool. centralizing. Yeah. That was just me having so much fun mm-hmm. uh, tying in like the local history aspect. And so... Now uh, there's a clip of i put a clip of by chat we sing as an homage in that in that video too mm-hmm. uh but that was that was another project that i did that i really really loved uh, So props to security month bc for for offering me their patronage
0: you also always forget that historica canada piece that you i believe wrote about oh, the yeah. <laughs> that i personally love that one because the animation was was its own thing but it was so well written and summarized it um so well but do you want to yeah, mentioned.
1: that. Uh, yeah, thanks for reminding me. That that is a good piece, and uh, thank you, Historica Canada, uh, <laughs> for for that job. Uh, I got to write that. Uh, the artist who I think deserves most of the props on this project is Angela mm-hmm. Uh Angela and I have collaborated. This is our second collaboration, though we didn't have direct collaboration. The production company did most of it, mm-hmm. um, and the uh Angela did the artwork for it and which the production company kind of animated uh Angela's a brilliant artist who does so much work with archival I don't know if we're in my house right now I don't I have I have Angela's artwork up in my in my work office Mm -hmm. um but not here uh Angela's originally from BC and comes from one of those like 1906 families who've been here for a long time and so she's like deeply connected to the history Mm -hmm. and so that was that was a lot of fun uh to write that um it was tough to summarize Kamagaramru in like seven minutes. Yeah, but uh, it was it, it was nice. It was nice to put it in like you know into your own voice, mm-hmm. um, for the voice to come from the community. So that that was that was great, and the visibility was so high, of course. And the one other project that I shouldn't forget because it's not like out there out there, but I we helped film a pitch video, which we costume designed, and I say we because it was a, took a collective us. We did stunt work for we acted for um called lion's rise which mm-hmm. is still being pitched around by a company called diaspora creative and diaspora mm-hmm. is the production company that did both Pressbreaker and um the ecstatic with me mm-hmm. um so they're friends of mine and they were they've been working on this project about modern indiesings history yeah. with like dramatic uh, with uh, historical uh, dramatizations in it and they were like Very hey cool. we need guys like who can cover these aspects like do you know anyone and i was like yo i'm your guy <laughs> we're man. right here yeah we're right here so we got a bunch of the things together and you know we got the costumes um which i had collected from like other pieces and uh like there the pictures are out there i think mm-hmm. which a lot of people have seen yeah and i think people saw what the vision that we've been like that i've been holding since i was like 14 years mm-hmm. old like in those pictures right wow. even though they haven't seen the footage yeah. cuz you see like that war looks like a war. Yeah. Right. Like those, those pictures look like miniatures, like mm-hmm. frescoes come to life yep. in some regard. And that was us working with zero budget. I yeah. was working with our own collections and like costumes that I was repurposing from other shows. Cause I, I did a show, uh, which I also love called guards at the Taj, um, which is near, near and dear to my heart. Uh, cause two of two of my closest friends, uh, from the theater and film space, Andy, uh, Calire and Adele Narona, um, it was just the three of us that did that show mm-hmm. at the Fringe Festival in Vancouver and I just directed it. It was written by Rajiv Joseph who's an amazing playwright um, from New York, I believe. But, like, that's that play is set in Mughal uh, in Shah Jahan's time during the building of the Taj Mahal. So mm-hmm. we got jammeh made. Like, the old jammeh. So we got to repurpose the jammas nice. to do for the Lion's Rise shoot because mm-hmm. it happened to be, like, a really, really close copy to the jama that Maharaj Ranjit Singh wore in one of these miniatures. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was cool, but, um, and then sick expo like reposted that one and it went like yep. viral and stuff
0: um a lot of people thought you were actually <laughs> people thought, and a real picture okay, had just circulated two, two out of things nowhere things happened
1: okay two things happened one people were like is this a real picture like this is crazy <laughs> right yeah and then like all these people were like usli photograph Maharaja Ranjit <laughs> saying and like posted. and I was like oh that's that's not great um but it's like what are you gonna do right yeah, like people also really. put that like that I think it's an Ottoman king, and like they circulate his picture saying it's Madanji yeah. Singh. That's been happening like for like decades. Yeah. Um, but then the other thing that was happening was like, I was getting like death threats in the comment section. People being like, "Oh, like how oh, could you me. depict Jit Singh with all these scars on his face? How could you do?" Then the the most hilarious ones, okay, because you know what, everything's funny to me. But the most hilarious <laughs> ones were. Like, how could you make such a weak-looking person <laughs> Madhah energy Singh? How could... You, this guy's not strong-looking at all. Yeah. Like, Modern energy Singh should be jacked. It, I was having the time of my life. Because um, I had to play Modern energy Singh. Because yeah. it's hard to find a sing that had, like, the gut-gut training mm-hmm. to do the stunt work and the acting experience yeah. to do that, right? Um, so And the age. Because mm-hmm. we needed... We specifically needed that uh, uh, post-adolescent, mm-hmm. young adult... I'm not a young adults, whatever the term is, right millennial monarch yeah. and Singh. <laughs> um we needed that age mm-hmm. uh to be depicted, and so the, the demographic was small, so I had to do it, yep. even though I haven't acted in forever mm-hmm. and so it was it was just hilarious, just being just just body shamed and those comments <laughs> was absolutely hilarious to me.
0: I wish I read those <laughs> I, g- I gotta go back I'm and find sure those they're posts. still up there um. This is, again, more for the students who might be pursuing this career. What, so what's the difference in preparing for a theatrical production um, versus a film
1: production? They're very different. Okay. Um, they're two, on the creative side, they're two different mediums. Like You have to consider that. Your proximity to the audience, um, your interaction with the audience is different in theater mm-hmm. than it is in film. So if you're, if you're a young writer and you're thinking about writing for both, consider what form, medium you're writing for. Don't write something and be like, "This will work as a play or a or a yeah. movie." It won't. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why they're always adapted. Um, oh yeah, yeah, they're that's, always so. Adapted. That's what that means. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, because you need little changes, right? There's mm-hmm. a f- brilliant movie that just came out um, a couple of years ago, maybe last year. Uh, it's called One Night in Miami. It's about it's a fi- it's a it was a play mm-hmm. um, first, and it's about like this fictional imagination of a night where uh, all these, like, black icons in the 1960s came together. Mm -hmm. in one night in Miami, where they all happened to be at the same place. Sam Cooke, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali. And that was a play. It was really successful. And then they adapted it into a film. And I think it's on Amazon Prime now. Um, Sorry for the Amazon plug. But um, it's it's a really great adaptation. So there is a way. Uh, 12 Angry Men is another thing that was, like, adapted to film after Mm -hmm. being a play for a long time. So, like, there's famous ones. But on the creative side, like you know the medium is the message as everyone loves to say in the mm-hmm. communications world um but yeah honor the medium that you're you're storytelling in um something can't be a comic can't be a movie can't be a, a stage play in its raw form mm-hmm. right a story can be all of those things but it yeah. has to be written to be those things on the production side it's like uh when you're directing um you have until the film comes out Mm-hmm you have all to say as a director. So there, there's like, there's two processes as a director. Um, when you're doing film, there's the onset directing actors, camera, yep, all that stuff, design. Then you get into editing, and you're directing the same film a second time because mm-hmm. now you have to choose between hours and hours and hours of footage and get it down to a 100, 120 minutes. Yep. Um, so all these choices you made, and you might have made all these different choices, you're now doing them a second time without anyone's input except mm-hmm. for your editors or without the people, the collaborators that you were yeah. working with on set. Mm. In theater, you're making all the decisions collaboratively until the day the show opens. The day the show opens, you as a director no longer have any control. You probably won't see the show ever again. Um, because You're not
0: calling any shots while it's going on? Nope. The director's
1: okay. done. You've done all your directing. Mm-hmm. After that, the stage manager is like calling the lights because that's just yeah. functional work. Yeah. The stage manager is calling the lights, calling like making sure props are set, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. You are just you are on vacation. You collect your paycheck on opening night and you're Do done. you watch the plays? Uh depends on the show, okay. right? Like sometimes like uh directors will go back. Some directors are like, Nope, I'm too busy, I'm on to my next show. And some directors like, um, we'll go back a few times mm-hmm. during Vancouver Goldusta. I watched most shows and that's because we had talkbacks after. So the conversation, yeah. so the community could talk and I wanted to be there for those conversations. So mm-hmm. I watched it quite a bit, but yeah, usually it'll be like opening night. And then if you're in town, like go watch closing night too, cause it's like, you know, it's a nice celebration of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so, like, if it's a long run, sometimes actors are actors. They'll always start doing like, they'll make choices. Like they've been doing something like 50 times, right. Mm-hmm. If it's like, like a three month long show. Yeah. And so they'll do some they'll start doing something different. Mm-hmm. So you'll go watch it like 4 weeks later and it'll be a different show. Like in some respects mm-hmm. and it'll surprise you. So that's fun. And sometimes they'll do something like sometimes they'll make a choice that you did not sign off on and it's yes. like super far and you'll be like, "Well, that sucks." Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's that's part of the game. That's what yeah. that's what theater is.
0: Interesting. Um, so again, that's been your journey from education into the career you have settled into now. Um, what would you say has been the biggest challenge of that journey so far?
1: I think the the initial finding what I was going to do was very difficult because I came out of film school. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want to work on set. And like, you know, lighting was never my thing. Sound was never my thing. Camera was, was never my thing, right? It was more like storytelling yeah. was my thing. So the decision to like not work in theater and film for a year just get more education uh continuing education wise work mm-hmm. somewhere else and then get a job in arts administration after and then eventually find my way back to theater after, uh, to storytelling Yep. after two years that was that was tough no one like i didn't really have a community to talk to about like what i was because there was like there's two things you could do they're like you could work on you could be like a union person who wants to like just work on shows and then you mm-hmm. want to work on bigger shows or you can like work on big shows doing other like doing other jobs and then like get teams yeah. together and make small films on the side that eventually mm-hmm. hopefully become big those are the two paths kind of outlined for you when you're coming out of school it's very independent film focused. yeah it's not like hey you want to become a writer director mm-hmm. and you don't want to work in this industry like that to that degree what are some options for you yeah and so it that that seemed most difficult to me because mm-hmm. i don't i don't i don't like the onset lifestyle to, to work on like multiple productions a year. I like to work on one film production a year um and one one theater production a year. I mm-hmm. usually do more than that, right? cuz you put smaller ones in there. Yeah. But I like to do one of both and then like it feels good cuz my lifestyle is like i have a very full life outside mm-hmm. of my work. Yeah. And a lot of people in those industries like their work is their life. I don't want to be like that. Um and that's not like a lack of dedication. I just, you know, for me, it's always going to be secondary to like my my full time job of being a causa, right? Like yeah. that's that's like that's what it's all about at the end of the day, for me. And um, that, uh, like, so it's finding the conversation that mm. was the dialogue between all those lives that was m- most difficult for me. Eventually, the way that I found it was landing in the world of arts administration, because mm-hmm. then I could day job. In my day job, I was surrounded by artists. I was surrounded by arts professionals. So it kept me yeah. like artistically nourished mm-hmm. and like in, in tune. I jumped around in arts administration and like what I did. So it kept it interesting for me. Kept connecting with new people. I did part-time as much as I could uh, until I couldn't afford to do part-time anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I left when I needed to leave, right? When I did, when I could afford to leave. And I yeah. just did projects. So like it offered that flexibility. So building a professional resume in arts administration, gave me the flexibility. Like I can leave a job now, take some contracts, and then I'll go find a job later if I need to.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I want to bring it back to something you've already touched upon in terms of how the community reacts uh, to the work you're doing now. Some of those conversations, being one of the only Amrit 36 in the industry, how have you seen your career intersect with the Sikh and South Asian community? Um, intersections in terms of, again, conversations you might be having with people, Mm -hmm. uh, reactions to your work, how people approach you, anything of that sort?
1: Um, Yeah. There's a lot of interacting. I mean, like uh, the show... Is
0: that just through your plays or in general?
1: uh, In general, too. Um, So, like, I would say, like, the audience of, like, people who watch our work are, like, go on, like, 50-50 to majority South Asian, Mm -hmm. right? Okay. and then in that in that group goes to like majority sick probably mm-hmm. um but like i always want the work to speak to a wider audience than who it's just about right yeah. um so like that 50 50 thing is kind of a sweet spot for me mm-hmm. um and i love that so audience wise they're always there for me when i'm in for me the the sick community can't just be the product thought about during the product. Mm It's not I'm making this for the sick community. They need to be thought about in the process. So when I'm writing, it's like, what do I want to challenge within our community? Like what thoughts, what sensibilities and protocols and thoughts and behaviors and cultures do I want to honor and respect, Mm -hmm. right? And like not blaspheme upon. Uh, Mm -hmm. How do you respectfully challenge a thought process and provoke, you know, self-reflection without provocation that... Um, puts that provocation that disarms as opposed to provocation that puts up defenses, right? Like that's the kind of thing that I want to think about when I'm mm-hmm. writing and creating. Yeah. Um, for example, uh, um, I consulted on a show where it's like small things, like okay, you want to. Use, there's a part in the show where the character uses a gurtka, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so protocol-wise, like is it fine if the character is, has their head covered, has no shoes on, and has their hands washed before they open the gothka side. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's fine. Is it better to hide the jil, the, the, the binding of the gothka, the gothka, so it can be an empty book, and we pretend that's what it is? And audience-wise, you see the person cover their head and take their shoes off. Uh-huh. And then in the program, right, or in the disclaimer before or after the film, people know that no gothka side actually used. That's great. Right? Because now mm-hmm. the audience, that's a sick audience, that question doesn't need to cross their mind. So they don't yeah. need to be provoked by something they shouldn't be provoked by. Mm-hmm. Instead, now when you're like, okay, the Bangti that this person re- was reading maybe was about caste. And you are coming from an Amrita family that is upholding caste to an abysmal amount. And you have no choice but to reckon with the content. Mm-hmm. because every th- the safety for you was built around that right yeah. so that's an intersection that i would say probably goes understated yeah. Is like thinking about the sensibility and and the language of the community mm-hmm. right the language of the community is is important because that's who you're speaking to yeah. um and so like and this is something like it's not foreign to us it's probably foreign in this space because we don't have a lot of people of our own doing this thing stuff mm-hmm. um but like if you listen to katha right a lot of prachariks. They'll give you hard truths, but they're not going to just come up and roast you for 90 minutes and then leave, right? Uh, most, <laughs> in most, most settings. Most, most. Like, but the ones who are going to do it, it's like they're going to, they're going to build an environment and a mahal. They're going to build a narrative mm-hmm. in which you're comfortable, you're inspired. Yeah. And within that, they're going to call you out. The message within the message. The your message within the message. Yeah. Exactly. So that's, that's kind of one place that the intersection happens. And then outside, like people are always talking to me, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's nice to be like, have conversations with randos who like seen the work uh, Mm -hmm. uncles and aunties who now kind of like see characters that have been very close to themselves in proximity yeah and can now see stories that are worth putting on stage and screen whereas they probably perhaps only thought the stories worth telling on screen before were the really good ones or the really bad ones Mm -hmm. right yeah. Like we can only make movies about the Saiyaji. Mm-hmm. We can only make movies about 84. Yeah. Right. We can only make movies about Indo-Canadian gang violence. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that. That's yeah. it. Like it's it can only be one or the other. Uh-huh. But it, we can only make movies about the Kamagatamuru. Yeah. It's like or or we can set it against the backdrop of those things and we can make the story about you. Mm-hmm. Right. And now I think there's there's been uncles who called me, be like, hey, there's a really interesting guy I know. I think we should make a movie about him. Right. I think it should be a comedy. Yeah. And like, co- like this one uncle, to be honest, I've been neglecting, uh, has been trying to get me to come to his office and sit down. because uh-huh. He wants to pitch me a movie idea. Nice. I just know it's going to become a long conversation, but he's like, got it all written out in his head. Right. And mm-hmm. like, that's something that people feel emboldened to do. And I love that. Mm-hmm. I like my thing. Spike Lee is probably my favorite filmmaker. Yeah. Not just for what he does on camera, part of it. Cause he does brilliant things on camera but also the culture he's built around his filmmaking. Yes. Because what I always say about Spike Lee is like, if you take Spike Lee, if you ever listen, if you ever watch a movie that Spike Lee directed and then watch it with director's commentary, it's great. Mm-hmm. Because you see Spike Lee's choices are informed by him being this black dude from from Brooklyn. Yep. Right? And if you took away Spike Lee's whole career, you took away every single piece of glamour and fame and filmmaking about him, his whole art practice, you took it away. Mm-hmm. He is this black dude from Brooklyn and he yeah. belongs there, right? Yeah. And he's become an ambassador for that community. Mm-hmm. But you can only be an ambassador so long as you still fit in that community. Yeah. And wow. for me, it's like, man, like I'm not from Surrey, right? I'm not from Brampton. But you can put me in those places and th- those are my, that's my home at the mm-hmm. end of the day. You put me in South Van, like that's my home yeah. at the end of the day. And if you took away everything else I did, or if you put everything under I do under a microscope, I want to be able to walk those streets and just be like beneath there, mm-hmm. right? And... I want to be able to go to the Gurdal Sahib, just be beneath here and be like, yeah, the I belong here. Mm-hmm. And so the rest of it is ambassadorship. And I always have to belong here. This is yeah. where my citizenship is mm-hmm. uh, in my community. Everything else is me being an ambassador um, and just like, you know, having fun with my art. Yeah.
0: Two thoughts that just crossed my mind when you said that. One, I realized how much critical thinking has to go into something like, gatha and filmmaking Mm. like i would have never thought that replacing a gothka with something uh side with a book was even an option but it sounds like the respectful and logical thing to do at the same time um another thing that crossed my mind was i feel like i experienced this in india during my last trip was that the art of storytelling or at least the conversations that happen have decreased significantly in canada because of the way it's not even the culture it's just the way the country is set up Mm -hmm. in terms of in the band, there's almost never a day, not just my house, anywhere in the band where someone else doesn't come. Yeah. Um, Whether it be like a BB talking to a BB or someone in the cave that's just going to mention something mm-hmm. in passing about what just happened the other day. And I feel like a lot of that was lost because um, my mom seems to mention this a lot, that neighbors aren't really your neighbors. They're just there. Mm. Uh, you don't talk to them. You don't visit them because it's not that open concept. There's no veranda that you can just yeah. all gather at. Um, and I feel like that's why that type of message where that, you know, you can have these events as a backdrop, but it's your story, um, can be very powerful for the generation that lost it when they moved here. Um, anyway, sorry, <laughs> uh, I, I digress. I love uh, it. I love it. I was gonna, um, mention that you're, you're now established in your career. Now you've, I, I I'd say so Arguably. <laughs> you're, um, you're someone people can recognize as a playwright. Was there ever a moment during that journey so far? And I know I've asked you this before where, um, you felt like, uh, it was, it was all worth it. The, the struggles in school, the, the productions, the SSN hall, everything coming together where you're like, this is it,
1: this, this is what made it. Yeah. When we did Vancouver Goldesta, um, and this is like it's such a touchstone moment for me cause I can, I can pick it out right away. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but it's such a touchstone moment because like it was a seismic shift inside of myself where, I just felt pure a pure emotion of like this is this is what I want. Mm-hmm. Where we did Vancouver Vancouver Goldusta, each show was followed by like a community conversation where like people could just talk about the show, share their experiences, right? So talk back, but like it was moderated more so for the audience to share as opposed to for the audience to ask questions to the actors, which usually what talkbacks are. And at one, um, and all these people were sharing their stories, but at one, there was this auntie during a punjabi soup and after the show like during the conversation she stood up and she started talking and she spoke in english and she basically said like this is the first time i'm sharing what i felt during those days mm-hmm. like i was new to the country and it was such a hard time And she's like, when I looked at one of the characters, she said, that's exactly what I was going through. Mm -hmm. And then she said, like, she so she shared, like, just her feelings, what she appreciated, and, you know, the... Like, how it wasn't about the politics, but it was about her at that moment in time. Mm -hmm. And then she shared, her husband was sitting beside her. She pointed at him, and she's like, usually my husband is the talker. Mm -hmm. She's like, because that's that's just how it is right mm-hmm. like i'll go places by his he's the one who does the talking she's like but i saw that character and she's like i could feel what that character was feeling because that's what i felt mm-hmm. she's like, so i had to share i like that's what it's about this is at the culture, which is yeah. like you know uh, one of the main stages in vancouver mm-hmm. and it's like what is predominantly a white theater space institutionally a white theater space even though they program like really diverse mm-hmm. and they bring in a lot of different audiences But it's institutionally it's a white space. Yeah. And when they bring in a show like this, that's great, because it's diverse content. But when that show can make space for the person who feels like I didn't belong anywhere else, and I didn't feel emboldened to speak anywhere else, this is an auntie who presumably goes to the Gordara, auntie who presumably goes to functions, goes to galas, whatever's happening in Mm -hmm. the community, presumably. Yeah. And but saying that this is the first place I felt emboldened to speak up. That's why I was like, this is, that's it. I could, if this is what you can achieve every time, that's amazing. But even just having seen this once and knowing that someone felt this way and could share that, that, that made it all worth it.
0: Yeah. It's very powerful. Very, very powerful. What made you um, embed those community conversations into Vancouver Goldusta? Was that your idea?
1: Yeah, it had it had to be done. um It's it like because you're revisiting trauma, mm-hmm. and the thing was like, oh yeah, you're like so. It's, there's no like therapist there, mm-hmm. um, but it was like people are going to be compelled to share mm-hmm. because sometimes there's people in the audience because we use a lot of archival footage from mm-hmm. news broadcasts from Vancouver from that time. Uh-huh. Multiple times, accidentally, there's people in the audience. Who saw themselves in the news footage wow yeah so they're wow. like they're watching and all of a sudden they see their face 30 years before
0: mm-hmm. wow what a flashback right that's and crazy. like
1: 35 years before like the like this is like daunting right yeah and so like they, they're compelled to share mm-hmm. um and uh so because of that because they felt compelled to share it's like we need to give them that space and the processing is part of the experience, mm-hmm. right? Depending where you do Vancouver, you could do less that. Side, I feel like it would be a good show. You, no matter where you did it, right? Even if it's an entirely white audience, you wouldn't need a community conversation there anywhere. There's a significant sick population and that show is done before I license it to anyone. Cause mm-hmm. it can be licensed. If anyone wants to try to put it up, <laughs> give me a call. But if I would, I'll ask them where they're doing it. Mm -hmm. I'll look into what the sick demographic is, and then I'll tell them if they have to do a community conversation or not. Okay. Afterwards, that's moderated by a sick person. Got it. Um. That has that that's like bilingual. Mm -hmm. Um. Yes, because because it you have to give them that space to process. Yeah. Um, or else you're kind of like giving this generosity in the narrative that allows so much interpretation, and then just kind of sending people home packing.
0: Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, we're going to switch gears a little bit into both past and future. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were able to speak to yourself when you were in your first year of undergrad, is there any advice or lesson that you'd tell yourself? Oh, this one's a tough one.
1: Yeah. I feel like Joe Rogan. <laughs> <laughs> you say you felt like Joe Rogan? Yeah.
0: He has some tough questions sometimes.
1: Yeah. But now I'm just mad. There's a Joe Rogan reference to what I'm on. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, that's okay. We'll deal with it. Uh <laughs> um I would probably say um like don't take everything so seriously. Mm-hmm. Um cause I don't think I realized how much things were gonna change all the time, how much I was gonna evolve as a human being. Mm-hmm. Felt pretty sure of myself. Um
0: is that just in the context of school?
1: No. Okay. All together. All together. And thanks for asking that. And the reason is because, um, the reason is because, like, there's one part of your identity that when you can hang on to and you're very sure of it. For me, uh, like I said, it's always been being a Khalsa, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And, like, having the spirit of being a Khalsa was, like, front and center. Yeah. I think an identity crisis that I faced outside of the academic Mm -hmm. was. This clash of understanding, like going into a space where I'm not the only Kalsa there anymore, which was my school experience, hmm. right? So like without that spirit, right? Without that self confidence mm-hmm. of like I have my Kalsa identity to fall back on and that's what I'm sure of, then like it would have been a much harder game for me, right? Mm-hmm. But for me, like it was like no, this is who I am. I gotta own. Either like I gotta own it, right? And people are gonna judge me for it. Yep. Or people can judge me for it and bully me for it and I'm not confident about it. Mm-hmm. So I chose to be self-assured <laughs> um, in that way. Now I'm in a space where it's like, oh, like it demands this negotiation of other people around you. I called say too. It demands this negotiation of spirit and nimrata, of humility. Mm-hmm. Right? A negotiation of what's a display of humility to what's humble thinking and humble ethos and humble action. hmm and I think because of the way I was so self-assured about identity, I tended to double down on everything in the moment. I learned something. I agree with it. Bam. That's who I am now. That's mm-hmm. a part of me. You become so serious about it. Yeah. To me, that's the antithesis of like that of spirit. Right? Khalasal mm-hmm. spirit is like everything is mokt. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like we're, everything, we're above everything as it is already. Mm-hmm. So that, that time when I was in undergrad, um, not just that first year, but those four years where I was struggling through. Mm-hmm. I don't think I had someone shake me. or I don't think I was open to being shaken by someone and being like, relax, dude. Yeah. Just relax. Mm-hmm. What you're doing is not going to be the end or beginning of the world. What you're doing, uh, Professor Singh writes this brilliant, brilliant thing. I think it's in Spirit Born People of like, like, who are you to worry about the state of the punt? Mm-hmm. Right? This is the yeah. Guru's Panth, right? Guru Gobind Singh Ji says, This is a Guru Sahib's taking care of this whole thing. Like, who mm-hmm. are you to care about it? But to me, it was like, oh, individual thing. Like, yeah. what, what I do today is a reflection on the path. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just like, just relax, man. You're barely a reflection of yourself. You're barely, you barely understand that you're a reflection of your soul. Yeah. Right? You're thinking about like, yeah, it's good to have that co- cognizance and consciousness of community pant and carry that with you mm-hmm. you take every single thing so seriously man you drive yourself up the wall and i did i did it took me like coming at 20 th- i can pinpoint the time 2013 uh the summer of 2013 i came out of film school and i finally finally got a wake-up call to stop and it was from gormoks spending time with um great gormoks um i'm not just saying it because it's topical right now because mm-hmm. gani shares in the town of meeting Gyanishir saying that summer of 2013 yeah game changer mm-hmm. to see what it to see what it is to be and enact um, being above beyond without like the stresses of the everyday right taking mm-hmm. yourself so seriously yeah and how much it frees you to enjoy your siki, mm-hmm. to enjoy your life right um, to enjoy your life as a go So yeah, my advice to 18-year-old Benita is stop taking yourself so seriously. Nobody (laughs) else's.
0: Interesting. We're going to contrast that with the future. Where do you see yourself in five years?
1: Mm, This is, I'm I'm so happy you're asking me now. Why is that? Because I, uh, I have been off of work since December 1st, Mm -hmm. right? Thinking about where I'm going to, what I'm going to do in the future. Mm. Um, And there are still aspects of my life I take myself very seriously, way more than I should. Mm -hmm. Um, Career is one of those things because of this, like, these goals, these ambitions, right? Yeah. Um, But if you asked me this a couple of weeks ago when I was still in that frame of mind, maybe a couple of months ago, I would say, like, I would have an itemized list for you of things I want to do. Right now, I want to be content. That's it. Because, um, with ambition comes and with ambition and i'll expose my politics here a little bit uh, in a world of hyper capitalism um the only thing waiting for you on the other end is burnout (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, yeah and if you think people like you take yourself too seriously for people now when you're burnt out really nobody cares (laughs) Mm -hmm. because you're no longer functional to them yeah um but yeah so to be to be content is really all there, all there is right now. Mm-hmm. Everything else is a byproduct. So yep. I would, I would love it if in a couple of months' time I re- reconnect with that ambition um, and like you know find some pathways forward and get back on like the work that I want to do. Mm-hmm. Great. But now it's become secondary to being like there's no guarantees of anything. So. Um, just to be content is such work, mm-hmm. right? Uh, for those familiar with Baba, just one Pagaji, they'll know Pagaji will always talk about, Bina Santok Nahiko Raja. Without mm-hmm. contentment, no one's ever going to be satisfied, right? Mm-hmm. Or without Santok, without, without, without peace, no one's going to be satisfied, right? Um, so, like, to find that peace is no easy feat. Yeah. And if you're so hung up on your ambition and your work and you think that you'll find it through your profession, I think that's a fool's errand. If I may be uh, obnoxiously white (laughs) and say that, but yeah, to try to find that only through your work is I think not um, advisable. Um, That's going to be found through your spiritual grounding, through your, through your guru, through your Sikhi. So um, to have that in dialogue. And I remember when I came to Sikhya for the conference, I always talk about the dialogue between your professional life and your, and your mm-hmm. psyche. And the reason that I talked about it so much is because that's right around the time where I was like, I got to take my foot off the gas. I was yeah. feeling less ambitious. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I need people to, we always talk about the ambitious people. And then we had, we always talk about the ambitious people and they would say, oh yeah, well, you should take care of yourself too. Mm-hmm. And then taking care of yourself becomes a part of your ambition. Right. It becomes an achievement to do like a 30 day exercise challenge yeah. and do blah, blah, blah. So you just take care of yourself, be content, find peace
0: interesting um i was actually gonna mention that next that during that talk it's a we won't go too much into it because we want people to register it's <laughs> a 2023 but um, are you bringing me back yeah i hope so <laughs> <laughs> but um part of the the conversation was purpose in life and it's balance and contradiction with career building mm-hmm. um is this a general point I'm throwing out there? Do you want to mention something about how work relates to our overall purpose in life?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what I talked about at Sika, which I'll give a little glimpse into, is like but not too much. Not too much. Is like the the dialogue between, and I just use that word, the dialogue between your work life and your spiritual life. Mm-hmm. That they can't happen in isolation of one another. You can't uh you know, like they karna the karna, right? You can't kill your spirit and do something. So you can't be, you know, espousing certain values and morals in your spiritual life and then yeah. go to work and suspend those for the sake of earning a dollar and then come back. Mm-hmm. Right? In a very literal level or even sometimes in by reflecting on it too, like how you're treating your employees and what what industry you're actually working in, what the end game is of that industry where you know, the mm-hmm. hat um, And so the dialogue Of those two things Is like it, It's I think A perceived duality Like everything else Right There's only One oh, yeah. Right There's only one Shakti There's only one power There's only one force In this world mm-hmm. That's Paramatma That's the divine It's the great soul And The The Perceived contradiction Is like Oh work Takes away from your time To do bhakti mm-hmm. To do meditation To do seva yeah. All those things like the way we like fulfill the duties of our of our body Mm -hmm. like yes we are soul but we're fulfilling the duties of our body to exist in this world we feed ourselves Mm -hmm. right we go to the washroom we have relationships Mm -hmm. all those like are fulfilling the needs of our body similarly the fulfilling our purpose and in our world is like using our hands to contribute to society yep i think the problem for us often comes when we try to replace one with the other or ignore one so like one either uh, to like a, to try to compartmentalize your values mm-hmm. and apply them to certain parts of your life while forgiving yourself and others yep. for not enacting those values and then on the other side is trying so hard to integrate your values Sikhi wise and your career wise that you think you can replace your sick practice and responsibilities and your duties to your soul with your career mm-hmm. I it's, it's a hard it's a hard thing to do yeah right yeah. um even working in the Guru Dharbar, even working f- doing guru sahib's work of prachar and kirtan you still have to do your kamai on top of that yep right and that's prachariks who have a jeevan who have who have a gursikhi mindset who have earned something and embody mm-hmm. that will will demonstrate that and tell you that yep that you have to do your kamai on top of the work mm-hmm. And yep. oftentimes we'll be like, "Oh, if I go into relief work, then maybe whatever I'm doing seva, so then yeah, I can give myself out. a pass on the simran." Mm-hmm. But it's like that's again a fool's errand. Um, yeah, it's a fool's errand. You like it's it's a part of what Guru Sahib has gifted us. It is not the this not the whole of what mm-hmm. Guru Sahib has gifted us.
0: You can't replace namjapna with kirtan.
1: You got to do both. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Um, before we end things off I want to explore one more topic Mm -hmm. um, that you've immersed yourself in and that's history you don't have to go through an entire history lesson um, but is there any story or fact you find really interesting about Sikh history in Canada something that the youth that might be listening to might connect with or find very very cool
2: Mm -hmm.
1: well I know we talked about it but I'll I'll talk a little bit about Santé Jaisingh uh so quick bio on Santeja singh is Santeja singh was born as Naranjan singh um, in the 1800s late 1800s um into uh, a family uh which was fairly well educated uh he grew up with kind of agnostic type of values uh i think uh singh themselves described themselves as atheist um but then their stories kind of point more towards an like agnosticism mm-hmm. than uh atheism um but Santej Singh grew up got a lot of education eventually became uh became got their law degree uh in Punjab and then became a salt inspector for the british which was not a great fit for them because even though Santej Jasing wasn't like uh, practicing gursikh at the time mm-hmm. still had a really high uh, respect for gurunakdev's values and ethics um, and felt like the work that SALT officers did, which is like tax collecting, mm-hmm. um, involved a lot of bribery, and involved a lot of like oppressing of your own people and mm-hmm. exploiting of your own people. So they couldn't do that. So they left and they became a vice principal at Calusa College. Um, and then at the time at Calusa College, um, where they're widely known as Professor Tejasing and that's why, or Principal dressing, and that's why that name is also uh, very much attached to Sant Jyot Singh's life, mm-hmm. um, you'll see like if you ever read their books, all uh, both all Sant Jyot Singh, principal and professor, are used. Um, they had a spiritual experience at Kaula College uh, as they're reading more and more Gurbani and kind of getting more into it that put them on the path of Sikhi aggressively, mm-hmm. and then they came into contact with Sant Atar Singh Ji uh, from Masto Sahib and mm-hmm. became Sant Atar Singh's kind of most devoted um, sevak and um sant Atar singh ji uh and sant Eja singh kind of collaborated to make decision that sant Eja singh should go out um of india and do prachar in the videsh in like the mm-hmm. the lands beyond india and so first they traveled to england where they uh they studied at the university college london cambridge i forget the name uh but it's there uh it's not cambridge university it's a different one but that's in cambridge mm-hmm um and immediately started just disruption which was a lot of fun They were the first student there to uh to not uh, uh abide by the dress code because they used to have to go in cap and gown mm-hmm. so Jessing changed got their rule changed so that they could keep the dart on mm-hmm. um and uh use their the instead of uh the cap as part of their uniform from there uh before finishing their education sante just came to um Columbia University, which most people are probably familiar with mm-hmm. in New York, to do teacher training. During that time, the Sikhs and South Asians here in North America were having a lot of like civil rights struggles. Mm-hmm. And so, Santhi Jasing became started traveling around uh, to support the establishment of Sikhs um, and South Asians across the continent. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Santhi in, in England had also started the first Gurdwara there, uh, still around. It's called the Kalsajata British Isles um central Gordara they call it as well. Mm-hmm. Um and it's in Shepherd's Bush. And so that that Gordara is still around. Then they came here, they had set up a little bit of a like a divan in their own apartment in Columbia University. Went to Stockton, where there was a lot of uh six at that time working in the fields. They established a Gordora side there, uh which is still around to this day, the oldest standing Gordora in the US oldest established Gordora period mm-hmm. in the US. And then from there Santé Justin came to Vancouver, uh, where there was this kind of pressure on the um, existing South Asian community to emigrate and to the British Honduras, which is now Belize. Uh, It was a conspiracy between the Canadian government and the British government and the Indian government and Chiquita Bananas, uh, or the United Food Group, I think they were called back then. Uh, Nameless Collective Podcast has the whole story. Mm -hmm. You listen to it there. Uh, so just in kind of using their law background and they're very educated, very well-spoken, yep. um, fully versed in English. Uh, they represented the community's interests at that time. Mm-hmm. Along with this, they also came here to Victoria, established uh, the first Gurdwara here. Uh, Prakash used to be done in a house and then they they motivated the Sanghas to collect money and then they came back the second time and they put the knee, the foundation stone of that Gurdwara Sahib, uh, now we call Sadwan Society, it's on Topaz, still there. Mm-hmm. Uh new Goradara building, but then Nipatar that uh, Santay Jasing um put down is still it's been marbleized and it's still visible. Nice. Uh so that's cool. Um so Santay Jasing did a lot of prachar at that time too for mm-hmm. for Sikhi, They did Amrit Sancharis in Vancouver, Amrit Sancharis in Victoria. Um they did anand the first Anand cottage happened with Sante Jasing's uh leadership mm-hmm. between a white woman and uh and a Gurdasik man. Uh, the white woman received Amrit Annie right, her uh, name became Labakaur, and uh, she received Amrit and became, uh, went to Mancha Singh, and uh, that was the first Anand Karaj that happened. So Santeja Singh's life is like the big, like I love Santeja Singh's life because like it's so dynamic. Mm-hmm. It doesn't stay still. Yeah, um, They go from like, they weren't like hardcore Gadar activist, anti-British. Mm-hmm. Um, they worked, at Casa College was a British sympathetic institution, uh, for the most part, uh, when they were in India. Here, they never did anti-British rhetoric, but what they did talk about was, like, the morality of Christianity and how it ends with British rule. And the thing was more about, like, the British need to fix how they rule India or mm-hmm. they'll be forced out, right? So it wasn't an ultimatum of, like, we're kicking you out. Yeah. It was, like, if you want to rule here, you must abide by, like, a moral code. Mm-hmm. But it was still seen as like sedition yeah. by the by the British. So, Santia Jessing activism like finishes up, which is like so like there's the Vancouver Province, which is like the one of the two main newspapers out here still, mm-hmm. uh, did like a full back page spread one day about Santé Jessing, and just about like this like thirty something year old preacher mm-hmm. who like is so well spoken and is like enraptured the community talking about how like people treat him like a demigod hmm. uh the i'm taking that verbatim from the mm-hmm. province they're like like the community treats him like a, a demigod yeah. uh the way the, the respect like people touch his feet in the streets and stuff yeah. like that right but something just not walking around like as you would imagine a Sun in your brain mm-hmm. 30 right? something year old well-dressed kind of like wearing a tie and a blazer yeah. uh out in the streets of vancouver but still the, commands this kind of respect mm-hmm. and then does all that Tries to go back to Columbia University, they withdraw his admission because seditious activity reported by the British government. Mm-hmm. Tries to go back to uh, University College, Cambridge, same answer, mm-hmm. withdrew his admission. Then enrolls in Harvard, gets another, gets their master's degree at Harvard. Um, and because Harvard kind of turned a blind eye towards, or sorry, rather turned their attention away from uh, their activities, mm-hmm. um, activism-wise. And so then when Santeja just goes back to India, like international superstar, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. people talking about them across the world, just goes back and becomes like a sevak of Santeja Singh again, right? Wow. Ditches the suit and tie, puts a chola on, says Santeja Singh, whatever your hokam is, I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. Santeja Singh gives him like humble seva, digging wells, right? Mm-hmm. Teaching Punjabi to kids. So, and like someone with like more ego would come in because Sante Singh had been in these years also traveling around to like world religion conferences mm-hmm. representing the entire Sikh community for the yeah. first time at these conferences yeah um like in Chicago all over the states mm-hmm. and like so like it's a big deal there yeah. was a time when Santhei Singh was in Vancouver arrived in Vancouver and in a London newspaper they wrote about the fact that this person Tei Singh, who's like this disruptor has just arrived in Vancouver mm-hmm. where all these problems are happening so like really was like impactful yeah and it just goes to back to this like humble life and then not that they're saying emboldened something just saying to, like, take the leadership of, like, making what eventually has become now a god um, Academy mm-hmm. um, and kind of taking, con- into taking control of that aspect of, you know, getting the getting young six educated because that's what their background is in. Mm-hmm. For a time, something just becomes the out of Akal <laughs> um, which is wild, like, and they held that position for a little while in the 50s. They come back here. And, like, it's hilarious their trip back here because, like, they're doing parchar, right? They're going to Gordare, doing katha. Mm-hmm. They're going to halls and doing, like, English lectures mm-hmm. about the Sikh faith at the same time. And then they get interviewed by one of these newspapers. Mm-hmm. And Santé so just and like, oh, yeah, and like, they used to be this family, like the Crawfords or something like that. He's like, when I was here in 1912, I met with them. And this is 1959. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in 1912, I met them. I'm going to see if I can find them again here in Victoria. Yeah. It's like I don't know if it was Crawfords, but it was, like, some white family. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just so funny. Like, this, like, really... Robust like intimate glimpse Glimpse you can get into their life mm-hmm. That's so relatable Santhi Adesing Every situation that I've been in my in my life As a young Sikh growing up in the diaspora mm-hmm. Right With Like growing up in Sikh circles Santhi Adesing has experienced those mm-hmm. Knows them And there's a story in some way About Santhi Adesing at some point in their life Where there's a direct relationship To what's going on in my life To what they experienced mm-hmm. And so it's just a beautiful like kind of like touchstone uh to carry um such a such an in- incredible life that they li- that they lived and um achieved so much and did it with such sincerity such humility mm-hmm. and um you know like no matter where you go in the world you're arms length away from something <laughs> and that's yeah. that's pretty that's pretty cool and not like not every country but at least like every like side yep. of it and that's that's incredible. You go to Africa, Sante Jaising is an arm length away. Mm-hmm. You go to England, Santhi Jessing is an arm's length away in Europe, um, in North America, in multiple places in India. Right. Mm-hmm. And now, Barthusab, Tantan, they've opened up. Right. Yep. And like dedicated in the memory of Santa Jaising, It's like, that's, that's incredible in mm-hmm. terms of a legacy.
0: Amazing. Um, so now we're, we're towards the end of the podcast. Um, we like to end every podcast with the random five. This is mm-hmm. where I'm just going to ask you five totally random questions uh, just for the listeners to get to know you better. Cool. Um, so first is what is your favorite book?
1: Well, I have to say the random five sounds like a really poor approach to a Panji Beata selection process <laughs> like that. I, co- didn't <laughs> <use the name. laughs> I take no responsibility for this idea. There's like the Ponji and then the there's a punch that were there. <laughs> 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 uh, anyway, sorry. I could I couldn't help. Favorite book. Favorite book. It has to be a tie. I'm sorry. Um Steak written by Sante Jaisingji. Um and then The Phantom Tollbooth and the autobiography of Malcolm X.
0: Three-way tie. Um, favorite quote or Barney
1: Punkti? Ooh, that's a tough one. I love permans. Anyone who knows me knows I love permans and Purmand based Kitten. Um, so one Punkti is tough, but I will choose one that resonates. Um, hmm. Um. Deep. Is that just resonating with you right now? Is that I, what you I come it? back to
0: it a lot. I come yeah.
1: back to it a lot.
0: Um, what is one of your weird quirks?
1: Um, I speak in weird voices a lot. That makes two of us. Yeah, even when I'm by myself. Yeah. Yeah
0: um if you can meet anyone in history who would it be
1: oh i hate this question
0: kind of feeling i obs- actually no history
1: because uh, i'm obsessed with it uh, too many can i rifle off a bunch fine <laughs> <laughs> i always cheat uh okay no i'll force myself to choose if i'm meeting one person one person man even that is so hard because i'm trying to like you gotta
0: prioritize that right
1: gotta you gotta prioritize gotta man you can rifle
0: them off i was gonna ask you anyway no I was, uh, I was gonna make a joke about wow okay so it's this person
1: i i gotta i think it's gotta be good going saying i i don't know how it can't be
0: mm-hmm. and what is your biggest pet peeve
1: hmm biggest pet peeve I think I really get frustrated when people are obviously not considering the other perspective in a conversation. So when they're self-centered. Interesting.
0: Okay. Um, I can't ask you more because these are the random short <laughs> five. <laughs> but before we end off today, is there anything else you want to tell our listeners before we end off?
1: Uh, I don't. I don't have much. I like. I. I commended in Deep Singh. Tanni I forget Tanni's full name. Uh, Silk Road Productions guys who made that bigger than Karate documentary. Mm-hmm. I. I. I implore everyone to watch it. Not just because it was Aristad, because like, you'll see the lasting legacy Akalsa can can make, mm-hmm. and it's incredible. Like the what Guru Sahib has blessed us with as like taking us as their own children, as their own bacha and um where we always should be in humility that we are the children of Guru Gobind Singh I don't think we should ever take for granted that we have the responsibility to be the children of Guru Gobind Singh too that's it
0: all right thank you so much Panit Singh for sharing your story and being so open um it's been an honor it's it's been a blessing to to be here on the west coast to record some of these these episodes and I'm glad that that this was the first conversation of of hopefully many more to come but again, thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to this third season of the Experience Siki podcast. You've been listening to the Experience Siki podcast.